Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, and welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is John Davison. I'm very excited to welcome John. Like I imagine most people listening to this show, um... My first introduction to, to video game podcasts and kind of podcasts in general was was one of yours. Uh, and John was obviously one of the four original hosts of that. And also as the kind of um, the VP of uh, One Up, you know, was responsible for a lot of these shows that have uh, inspired literally hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of others. Um, I was at uh, Glass Games yesterday. Uh, there'll be a special show all about it coming out next week, but um, it was great. Like it was a, a really good show. Like congratulations to to Simon and the guys. But I, I spoke to a few people at the show. I did a few little interviews sort of live from the venue, and literally every single person that I spoke to uh, hosted their own podcast. Which I mean, genuinely, I do think that's kind of wonderful that everybody has this kind of uh, outlet. Um, I only say generally because I'm. I'm quite competitive and they're, they're stealing market space I'm, it, they're not stealing market space who's making any money out of this <laughs> um okay so if you want to get in touch with the show you can email the show it's uh, checkpointspodcast at gmail.com uh, and it's at checkpoint show on twitter and it's forward slash checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding uh, if you do enjoy the show um and if this is your first episode you please do go back and listen to some of the older shows. There's some terrific and fascinating chats with uh, various people in and outside of the, the video game industry. And if you if you do enjoy the show, then please do consider writing a review or, or leaving a rating on iTunes. It's it's hugely appreciated and, and really does help with the show and help find new listeners. Or if you just, you know, you know someone who might be into it, please do pass it along and share it around on social media. That's all really uh just it's just it's lovely and i'm I'm always very appreciative of it um okay so i'll be back next week with a new episode it'll be the the glass game special but for now i hope you enjoy this chat with john davison let's get on with the show Hello, John. Uh, welcome to the show. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? I'm John Davison. Uh, my job title sounds very grand. It's I'm the general manager of Glixel, uh, which is a new um, gaming website from Rolling Stone. Um, but I have been doing video game stuff in one form or another for a very long time, 20-something years altogether probably nudging up on 30 now <laughs> and it's, it's always been uh, the press side of stuff you've been on yeah nearly always um i have done a few stints at, at startups and then i also spent nearly a year working at zynga um uh, building what was going to be uh kind of cross game social network thing. So I was actually at a, I was at a startup that was doing like, um, in game 
chat that was okay. going to sort of build out to be like a social network for gamers. And then when that closed down, um, Zynga asked me to go and work with them on building something similar, um, which ultimately never went anywhere. Was that pre or post buyout? Oh, a Zing- that was quite recently. That was a couple of years ah, okay, ago. Okay, okay. So you, yeah. didn't, you didn't make the, the millions from the Facebook deal or anything? I never made any millions. I uh, I came in as part of the... Um, when Don Matrick had taken over and he was bringing in a lot of people that were more sort of traditional video games business people. Okay. Um, so I was part of that wave of people that was, was predominantly... There was a lot of XEA, a lot of Blizzard, and a lot of uh, LucasArts people that ended up at Zynga for a while. Um, and, and now not so much. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame. Like it, it's such a, I don't think we'll ever see the same sort of trajectory of a, a company again, because it was very much like a perfect place, perfect time sort of thing with the rapid rise of Facebook and stuff. Yeah. And you know, there, there are different kind of, I mean, I look back on that time as being very educational. I think that's my yeah. That's that's my zen kind of like. It was a weird. <laughs> it was a weird time, um, but I got to see how a gigantic company that makes you know a lot of money on mobile operates and where it's kind of the things that it panics about and the things that are difficult. And so it was. It was really interesting, particularly given sort of my background, just to get some like full-on exposure to that stuff yeah um so i learned a lot <laughs> no it, those sort of companies are like the, the mobile space especially it's so like because like especially over the past year or so with doing the show i've met a lot of um indie devs like really small sort of teams who are like putting out mobile games and stuff and the like the discoverability is just such a huge issue and it's so tricky with like such a what seems to be a friendly marketplace but actually getting something get some traction on that marketplace is almost impossible it's it's all nearly always kind of luck i mean obviously you're having a good game as well but you know a certain amount of luck it's there's a lot of there's a lot of science to it and i think that the real eye-opener for me was that to maintain a successful game it's it's much less about the creativity which is the initial hook to get people in but then it's 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 I mean, certainly at Zynga, it was predominantly product managers that were basically managing the game from a spreadsheet. So it was all, you know, every meeting I was in was about, you know, engagement and retention numbers and, you know, and it just, it, it, it you know, it, it wasn't as, as sexy and creative as you think being around, like, no. people that make video games would be. Well, that's like, I mean, that that's, I'm sure as a, as a kid, you never would have imagined yourself being in that sort of position. So let's go back. And if you can remember, John, what was the your very first experience of a video game? So um, my dad worked at ibm in the uk so i've been in the just i've been in the states for 18 years now um but i grew up in england and my whole exposure to computers and video games and everything was because of my dad because he he worked at ibm he was a systems engineer where about the uk was this so i was born just outside nottingham and then and my dad was at the ibm ibm had a big office in nottingham Mm -hmm. and then later on he was sort of all over the place um, and we lived near Cambridge okay. from when I, from when I was like 10 until I, w- until I left home at like 18, 19. Um, but there were always it, computers in the house though. There was always computers in the house. There was always sort of like technology and, and sort of keeping up with what was out there. So I remember we had, um, 
I can't remember what it was called. It was a grand, the brand was Grandstand. So I would okay. imagine people, people my age probably remember these. And it was a, it was a, it had two paddles that were analog knobs with a single button. And then it had this big plastic rotary dial in the middle that allowed you to select between what it called tennis, football, squash, and I think yeah, a couple yeah, yeah. of other things. And it was basically Pong variants and it was black and white. And, and that, so that was the first home video game. I think I may have played something on one of the IBM mainframes even younger than that, like something maybe vaguely space warry, but I don't remember specifically. The first thing I remember playing at home though was this grandstand Pong variant. That is, so, so it wouldn't have been like a novelty essentially like a lot of people i've spoken to the you know video games are something external they discovered and then wanted to bring into their homes so if you've grown up around this sort of technology it was probably just a natural progression right yeah i mean we always had stuff and I, my my dad was always the kind of dad that liked to research things that were what was going to be the best quality which meant that very often we didn't always have the thing that was the commercially the most successful thing but it was like in the grand scheme of things this is the one that has the most promise so we had a um we didn't have an atari 2600 we had a so in the states it's called the odyssey 2 and in england it was called the philips g7000 which was a cartridge based thing that I've had never heard a, of that even so it was uh, I mean, the Odyssey, the Odyssey, I think a lot of people in the US remember. So it looked more like a computer. It, it, was, a, it was an early game console. It was the same era technology as the 2600. Yeah. But it had a, um, a touch-sensitive keyboard on it. And then one of the cartridges was a basic cartridge. So the, the sort of family logic was it's a computer. I mean, it wasn't really. I mean, yeah. it, was, you know, it was a very rudimentary, probably not even 8-bit thinking about it, you know, um, but it had it had a number of games on it that were you know that definitely informed my taste early on, um, and then sort of moving on from there into into home computers. I mean, because I grew up in the UK, it was all it was all computers and not consoles until much later. Yeah. So we had an Atari four hundred, and then uh, I moved from there. I had an ST, and then we had PCs and stuff. Oh, so and you skipped the whole like Spectrum and Commodore. Well, we had a we had an Atari four hundred, which was sort of the Com was Commodore sixty four era. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and we had a number of them. We had a four hundred and an eight hundred XL, and then I won a one thirty XE in a contest in your computer. Oh, um, amazing! When I was like, I don't know, I must have been twelve. What maybe? was the What was the contest? You had to design a game that would take advantage of of the fact that the 130XE had 128K. So I that's quite uh, a, a tricky competition question for like a, a preteen. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I basically I was really into. Do you remember the game Drop Zone? It looked a lot yeah, like yeah, yeah, the Archer McLean game. Yeah, I was really enamored with that. So I had this idea for a game like Drop Zone that was more like a, a sort of uh, ultimate play the game style um, adventure, multi-screen adventure thing. So I drew out this huge map that this sort of jetpack guy would explore. And and I, I guess it was a lot of work and that was what won it for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. So but did you, like, you had all these computers. Your dad obviously worked in it. Did, did he play or were games kind of like your thing? 
We would play a lot. He was really into, um, and still is really into flight simulators. So, um, and like the, you know, flight simulator, not the jet fighter stuff, the, yeah. you know, flying Cessnas and, and, and airliners. And so that was sort of what really drove him on the game side. But we were, you know, very sort of aware of, of everything. And we were in, we were in a computer club where, you know, they would meet every Wednesday night and we'd all go look at, you know, what people had bought and import. I mean, on the Atari scene, there was a big import scene as well. So there were a couple of stores in the UK that there was like Tottenham Court Road Computer Exchange used to have Atari stuff. And then there was a there was an actual Atari store in Birmingham that we would always go like to. Like an Atari kind of branded store. Well, it were I don't know if it was that was their specialty. It was this store in Birmingham mm-hmm. and it sold all the Atari stuff. Um, and my grandparents lived in Wolverhampton. So whenever we went to visit them, we would stop by the Atari store and, you know, see if they had Star Raiders in. (laughs) (laughs) But so, I mean, you played with the family, but was there like, especially then not a lot of people would have like grown up with games. So were you like the, the popular kid in school that everyone would come around to your house to play games not necessarily the popular kid that's kind of i was gonna say popular might (laughs) be putting it a bit especially (laughs) the nerds who had all the games then at least yeah i mean when when i went to secondary school and it was much more sort of accepted you know i i I was more the guy that had the unusual choice you know because everyone had a spectrum or a commodore and I had an Atari and it could do different things. So it was more a cur- there was that sort of like niche of people that just appreciated um, different things. Um, but was there like was- in that sort of period, it was very well, like way through up until the 90s and probably still now, to be honest. Um, it was very tribal, you know, it was like which computer oh, yeah. is the best. So if you've got your kind of weird esoteric choice, were there games that you were like, well, this means mine is the best? I mean, things, there were some of the stuff like, you know, the best version of Pole Position, I think, was on the Atari. And then, you know, because it, it, that, that era Atari could, it could do, um, it had 256 colors, which at that point, nothing did, right? Yeah. Everything was, was 16 color or in the Spectrum's case, it was eight color. And so it could do some graphical stuff. And then some of the things that were coming out of the US, like, you know, I mean, I remember playing mule and and some of that the stuff that was on on floppy disk that wasn't on cartridges that were starting to get really adventurous and yeah. start pushing the boundaries a little bit they were the interesting thing. but i was always deeply jealous particularly of the guys that had commodore 64s because things like iridium and sanction and monty on the run and none of that stuff was on the atari that is that is heartbreaking and i assume they wouldn't have been i mean i'm assuming i don't know if they're because the, like, the magazines were obviously a big part, and they played a part in your your life later. So, like things like you know your computer, your Sinclair and Zap and stuff, were there kind of magazines for the Atari? Yeah. So I got my my first piece of anything published when I was fourteen. Um, so my dad got this gig. We went to some computer show um, in. I guess it must have been at like Earl's Court or something. Okay. And, and we got talking to the publisher. Uh, there was an Atari magazine called Page Six, which was basically a sort of super fanzine. So it actually had some newsstand distribution. It was mainly subscription. Um, and my, my dad headed off with the guy that ran it, and he would write things about flight simulator. So when the map packs and stuff came out, he would write that stuff up. And That's then, cool. So your dad was I, a games journalist before you. Yeah. And... Uh, 
we I would tag along on these shows and we'd go and sort of look at everything and we'd go, you know, we'd go watch Jeff Minter do color space demos to Pink Floyd and, you know, all the <laughs> stuff that used to happen back then. And I mentioned that I was interested in doing stuff and he's like, look, I can't pay you, but if I send you games, you know, and you review them and it's any good, I'll publish it. And That's even keep- better than money. Yeah, and you can keep the games. So this was when the ST had just come out and we had one. And the first game I ever reviewed was uh, Winter Games by Epics on the Atari ST. And was that something like you always wanted to do? Like, I mean, a common thing that that I ask people on the show is like all these games they were playing as a kid, especially like British kind of home computer scene was there was always uh, the capacity to make your own games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that kind of people were a bit more aware that, you know, games were designed and built um, as opposed to people growing up on consoles. But was that something you thought about? Or was it was press just something you were always interested in writing about games? It wasn't necessarily a burning desire as a kid. It was more as it as I sort of did it more and more, realizing that there was probably a potential career path in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was doing it from when I was 14 until... So I got my first, like, real gig when I was 19. So I was writing for for Page Six, which turned into... It was called New Atari User, eventually. And that actually, you could buy it at at Smith's and stuff. Um, And, I mean, I got my first full-time job almost purely based on the fact that I'd previously had something published, you know, like it was like it were there were a lot of people that wanted to get into stuff. Um, and I'd heard that there was a job on ST action available. So okay. I'd interviewed, I'd interviewed for it and didn't get it. But then I got a call from Hugh Golner, who was the publisher. And he said, I'm launching this weekly games magazine and we'd like you to come work on that as a staff writer and you know we're coming to you because you've actually you know you're one of the few people out there that's actually had work published before absolutely yeah <laughs> so that was my so i moved from cambridge up to macclesfield and worked at europress for a few years on it was called games x the pitch was smash hits for video games it lasted a year <laughs> so does that mean you had like kind of really inane interviews with uh, people like jeff minter about like what their favorite color was and stuff there was a bit of that yeah i mean it was mainly <laughs> there was reviews and previews and news but there were a lot of people that worked on it that have gone on i mean the, the games x ended up uh so alex simmons who um is is senior at ign uk was there um gary witter was our southern news editor <laughs> um and who was gone on to write Star Wars movies. Yep. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of people that kind of passed through at that time that have gone on to do good stuff. So it was it was a we had no idea at the time that it it was just a cool thing that we were trying out, you know. And and I loved writing every week and working on a weekly first actually set me up for life in terms of <laughs> thinking about deadlines and priorities and stuff because. Yeah. It was tough, you know? I mean, we had a deadline every, I think it was every Tuesday. Um, so we just got into this rhythm where there was no time to mess around, you know? That's crazy. So you've been literally working as a video game writer, essentially, your entire life. You've never had, like, a, a real job, so to speak. 
I worked in the menswear department at Marks and Spencers for a couple of months. Oh, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> was that just when you were about 30, you thought, let me, let me try something a bit different? <laughs> no, that was when I was 18. So uh, technically, I'm still on my year off before going to university. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's super interesting. And like the, the thing about that sort of stuff, much like the, sort of the, the game scene at the time, was you know, this, these kind of magazines hadn't existed before. There wasn't a kind of you know, rich history of, of video game magazines and video game reviews, especially. So like, was it, did you feel like you were just kind of winging it, but also kind of, you know, developing a style? Yeah. And that really came later. So, so I was at Europress for a couple of years and then Hugh, who had started SD Action and Amiga Action, which then, which got acquired by Europress. Yeah. He, when the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo came out in the, in the UK, he, he saw that as a big opportunity. And at the time, Europress wasn't 100% behind the notion, was, was my sense at the time. I mean, I was only 19 or 20, so yeah. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't completely familiar with what was going on. Um, but he actually left and started a new publishing company called Maverick Magazines, and a bunch of us left and went with him. Um, and uh, there was there were two magazines at first. There was Control, which was the Super Nintendo book. I remember. And then Mega Drive Advanced Gaming, which is the one I worked on. Um, I moved over as a staff writer and then became the editor of it after, I don't know, a year, I think. And I ran that. Um, and then at Maverick, we kind of, we moved from Macclesfield to Oxford and when we were in Oxford, we launched PC Player, and PC Player was the was that sort of inflection point for me. Um, and it were PC Player launched around the same time that Edge launched. Okay. Um, and it was a similar uh, mentality. It was like, let's see if we can do this stuff and take it a little more seriously. Um, higher production values, better writing much more of a focus so it wasn't let's make a p i mean our pitch and it was it was <laughs> you know it was like we're going to make a pc games magazine that is purely focused on simulation role playing and strategy games which that was the hook i mean the fact <laughs> that that was all that the pc games market was at the time was beside the point but it was like that was an early lesson in you kind of and it and it's super valid today as well online is that if you can sort of distill what you're trying to achieve down into sort of something really simple and focused it it helps people really understand where you're coming from and so pc player was the first thing that uh that really felt like it was more than just writing about games it was writing about games in a particular way so we would track down you know we would have a jet fighter pilot write about flight simulators and we would have a military military historian write about strategy games and you know it was it was yeah. going that one extra step um and we did that and that did that did, that did really well for a while until maverick closed and future bought it and subsequently closed it down really the and competition. then what, uh, well at that point future was sort of like gobbling up things and doing that thing that a lot of magazine publishers were doing at the time where they were acquiring things just to to hold on to the market, so yeah. they would have a market leader, and then they would they would even launch against themselves, so that they could grab more of the audience. It's why there were you know so many console magazines and PC books back in the late nineties. Yeah, um, but when PC Player closed, um, 
I had been talking to Tim Ponting, who was the publisher of PC Zone, who just happened to need an editor. And it, the timing was just fantastic. I called him and I'm like, hey, we should get together. I don't have a job anymore. And he's like, what do you know? I have one available. We should go out <laughs> for a beer and talk about it. And, and, and that was that. And I moved to London and that would have been in uh, 94, maybe, around PC Zone. So, like, but with the the, um, the the PC Player magazine, with the you said you know there was a shift and they, you were trying to address games in a different kind of way. But were there any specific games around that time that you sort of that, that changed your opinion in the same way that made you think like maybe this isn't just like a novelty thing or or a toy, but this 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 could be a very serious art form. There were a bunch at that point. I mean, we, we got really lucky with the timing. Um, Did you feel that, though? Did you feel like there was a point where your, your opinion kind of shifted a little bit? Yeah. Um, so at PC Player, we our launch issue had EF2000 on the cover, which was DID's um, military combat sim. Okay. I don't know if you remember it. Um, which was doing some stuff that, you know, was pretty phenomenal and super ambitious and... We went up and talked to Martin Kenwright and talked about what they were doing with the tech. And it was just like, it was it was a really interesting story in terms of what they were trying to achieve and what they were pushing the PC to be able to do. And, yeah. you know, this was at the dawn of 3D acceleration. So we were just starting to get a whiff of the early, um, early voodoo cards and stuff that were driving things. So in that period, you know, we had stuff that was starting to become like real 3D. But then... In the run of PC Player, our covers included TIE Fighter, Salmon Max, um, Ultima, uh, which one? I want to say eight, I think. I have um, no idea. I'm not going to correct I can't you. remember which Ultima. It was either seven or eight that we put on the front. Um, but there were a bunch of really sort of iconic games, and it was a point where we were actually aware as it was happening that this game is is actually really significant you know i mean particularly that a lot of the output from lucas we had a really good yeah. relationship with lucas um who were publishing through through us gold in the uk uh so we had a really good line into what they were doing and you know there was genres were being defined and then redefined constantly back then you know and this idea of how you classify a game and think about it and talk about it we were actually having to define the language a little bit yeah and this is what i find press. so fascinating about being like on the sort of front line so to speak of the development because it was like such a rapid like those kind of 15 years i guess from 90 to 2005 it was crazy the kind of acceleration in the, the types of games you could get yeah and i mean so i was doing this around the time that jeff green was on computer gaming world over here and okay. we had we had similar experiences around specifically doom and Doom was one of those games that uh, definitely separated the generations in terms of mindset. You either got it or you didn't. And those of us that got it were like, this is a really important game. We need to be talking about it. I know that we said that, I mean, for us, it was like, look, I know we said that our, our mission was strategy simulation and, and you know, and, and, you know there's very particular type of game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this thing is, is going to change video games and there were a lot of people that pushed back on it and like ah, it's shareware and it's a shooter and who cares and it's like no it's going to be massive 
And the knock-on effect that Doom had into everything else and the games that we had subsequently that, you know, that borrowed bits from Doom, you know, there was you know, everything from, you know, you had the Ultimate Underworlds that were hitting around the same time and yeah. then later on you had System Shock. In fact, my first cover on PC Zone was System Shock 2, I think. You know, and it was clear that, that this shift had happened and that Doom was the inflection point. Yeah. And I think there were a lot of people in the press that were like, ah, it's just a fad. No one's going to, it's not going to be a thing. <laughs> was it not like, like, like similar to what Jeff was saying? Did it not kind of dominate the office in terms of like multiplayer and things? It, it did for us, yeah. But we were aware of a lot of people around it that were very dismissive of it. And there were also people in our audience that were like, why are you messing around with this Doom thing? No one cares. <laughs> yeah, because they're, they're the flight sim enthusiasts. Like that's your, your dad. Was your dad a fan of Doom? Mm, I mean, I'm sure he appreciates Doom's like significance, but I don't think he's ever played it. Right? Okay. <laughs> so, like, but I mean, it was still quite niche, though. So, did you find, um, were you ever kind of frustrated that you weren't able to sort of reach a, a large audience, or that people, um, like like Jeff was saying last week, like he's he's got aunties still to this day that say like, when are you going to get a real job? Um, which is uh, crazy. No, I mean. I got very lucky in terms of my career trajectory. So I was, you know, I was the editor of a magazine when I was 21 or two. That's crazy. Um, I was the publisher of PC Zone when I was 25. Um, Did you ever think, like, what on earth am I doing? Yeah. Like, were, were you constantly Frequently. constant imposter syndrome? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, dude, to this day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's an element of, uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And I think a lot of it is you got to trust your instincts, right? I mean, you see something's coming and you see the people around you are responding differently. And, um, and you got to go with it. I think, you know, I mean, all the way back to, I mean, I think Doom was the first really obvious demonstration of that, which is you can dig your heels in and wish that everything would be the way it's always been, or you've got to go with it. And I think that was, that was the lesson I took away from that experience was that, look, if this is what people are doing, then find a way to talk about it. And, and did, um, I don't know, like, like, were you still it's it's weird because you're in this position where you're 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 working in games from such a young age there's constantly kind of games coming in so what i do like at this period of people's life that i usually speak to i'm talking about making friends in university and, and playing games together but everybody you knew would have been playing games and would you still see it as a as a pastime i guess now no, no, no. Then, like, when you were doing oh. all this stuff, like, I mean, obviously, it's it's fun, but it's still your job. You know, you never had that separation between like playtime <laughs> no. and work time, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, you know, finding a girlfriend could be challenging. Yeah, absolutely, of course. <laughs> You're working for a video game magazine in the early nineties. Yeah, I mean, you know, you tended to to actually there were uh, back then there were the mix of men and women in the in that space was was actually better than it became later um because you know us young fellas were undisciplined and we needed good editors and i think there were you know there were there was an effort to recruit like production editors and managing editors from sort of more serious areas of journalism to impose some some discipline on these kids writing about video games and, and at that time 
a lot of that was 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 women that were moving across that were you know that adapted super quickly and and became a really important part of of getting these things out every month that's that's fascinating like is um, I, the fact he was so young is still kind of blowing my mind a bit because I imagine if I was 22 like running a magazine God knows what would have happened like I was so irresponsible we like you must have been quite a, a level-headed kind of good kid I suppose I don't know about that I mean it was just it was my life right so um before I moved so when I moved to London everything was a bit different because we were part of Dennis Publishing which was a bigger sort of more structured organization. But when I lived in, in Macclesfield, when I was at Europress and then at Maverick, um, my entire life was focused around that job. So I lived in a house where everyone except one, there were six people in the house and everyone except one of them worked in the same office as me. <laughs> um, so, and it was walking distance to the office so we could walk to work and then we'd leave work and go to the pub and talk about what we were going to do tomorrow and then we'd go home via the kebab shop. And, and you know, there were periods where th there was no difference between weekdays and weekends. You were just sort of living this thing, you yeah. know, but you were doing it with your friends and you were doing it with people that understood what you were talking about. And, and that was how we got through it. Um, that sounds amazing, to be honest. And when you're 20-something, that's great. Absolutely, right? yeah. Not something I want now. I'm in my forties. <laughs> you know, you need you need to be able to walk away and go spend time with your family, and you know, and be much more mindful. Oh yeah, of but the, just of, of that age, though. I mean, that must have yeah. been just amazing. And it was great. And we we there were superhuman feats that were achieved because we were living it that way. You know, there would be you know you'd you'd pull things out of your ass at two o'clock in the morning. You know, yeah. and and it would be the thing that made the magazine sell. Um, Later, I mean, there were versions of that sort of on PC Zone um, because at that point we were, it wasn't just a magazine, it was, we were in the cover disc wars, right? It was, you know, and in the gaming space in the UK at the time, you know, the PC format was huge for a British magazine. Yeah. You know, it was, it was doing about 100,000, which was really big for a British mag. And PC Zone and PC Gamer were both probably in the, 60 to 70,000 copies range. Um, and what would make or break you was what was on your cover disc. And I can remember there being all out war between us and Gamer over getting the Quake shareware on our disc. <laughs> Are we and talking like serious kind of uh, sneaky dealings? and you Not know, sneaky dealings, but sneaky um, like. I mean, like sneaking into offices and all that. Sort of oh, stuff. no, none of that. But like, you know. <laughs> You know, we had a you know we have a deadline where we go to press, and then that the knock on from that is distribution, and when it hits retail, yeah. and you have a certain amount of leeway. What well, we were we were able to manipulate our schedule so that we literally at the last possible minute got the Quake shareware and were able to get it on the disc and push it out because we were able to sort of manipulate the timing and. And that was, you know, that made a huge difference. I mean, that was, you know, an extra 10,000 sales. And, you know, it was that kind And that was because at the time, you know, it was sort of dawn of things being distributed on the Internet, right? And it was mm -hmm. like we had guys stay up all night and see the when, when Quake hit um, Ed's system and pulled it down and, and made it happen. And it was, you know, it was seat-of-the-pants stuff. <laughs> 
that that is that is so like i mean that's been so exciting and i'm sure that kind of that feeling would have continued on because you know that there's always the next kind of uh cover disc so to speak so you have like videos and and exclusives you know and that, that's ultimately what it came to be on, on the internet as well yeah so and it what, was yeah, it was it was it was it was exciting because there was you know there were the stories you wanted to tell and actually what zone the big lesson at zone as well was um, well I don't think people ever really realised when PC Zone was at Dennis was how small the full time team was so the PC Zone team was was relatively tiny it was like five or six people full time and what people I don't think realised at the time was the 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 voices that were in PC Zone's mix that everyone associated with with that brand. So there was yeah. like David, David McCandless, Patrick McCarthy, uh, Duncan McDonald, Charlie Brooker. None of them were full-time. They were all freelancers. Um, and they, but they basically, they would come in and they'd pick up the code and then they'd go and they'd write these brilliant works about video games. And, and, you know, that was how we ran that thing. And that they were, and then they had the freedom to go write for, you know, computer shopper and whatever other magazine they wanted to. Um, and what that period taught me was sort of the importance of distinct voices. I mean, you know, all of those guys were like super talented and, you know, and they were, they were thinking about games in ways that, you know, I think opened everyone's eyes a little bit, you know, and they all had a different take on it and they were all really, really into it. And, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, we started talking to Charlie. I mean, I had no idea Charlie would go on to become what he, what he has. And, yeah. I, and uh, but I mean, he was drawing the ads for Tottenham Court Road Computer Exchange when we, when we <laughs> found him and we found him through David, David McCandless was friends with him. And he's like, well, you need to talk to Charlie. He's brilliant. He's hilarious. Look at these these comic strips that he's doing they're fantastic and we originally brought him in and he was doing comic strips for us that would routinely get us into all kinds of trouble um, <laughs> like like what can you think remember an example he did he did a comic strip about lara croft killing animals that got us into trouble with like the rspca <laughs> and all kinds of people um but it was like he's always had that real biting wit and this sense of satire that's always been like you know his ability to drill into the sort of stupidity of something has it has always been his skill and he applied to video video games back then it was brilliant you know there was no one else writing like that um and that's something that i think you know that was another one of those sort of lessons as you move forward that you've got to find the voices that can deliver on something that isn't just writing a book report on a video game yeah, and I mean, and you've done wonderfully at that. Your various kind of stewardships. Is there, is there anything in specifically that you you look for that you that that sort of jumps at you and you think, oh, okay, this person could be brilliant for this? It's more when we talk. To, I mean, we're going through it right now, right? I mean, we're yeah. we're launching something new, and we have a very specific direction that we want to go, which is more cultural and people focused. And you know, you talk to people, and they either get it or they don't. You know, and it's it's tell me what's interesting and tell me something that I might not already know. And I think that it's as simple as that. Like, you know, I mean, it's as glib as surprise me, you know? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it, honestly, ha- one up yours was probably the single most, I don't know, important sounds too grand, but in terms of bringing everything together, 
I don't think I've ever been a part of something that had as much impact on people seemingly as that did because oh, it was huge. The way that people liked to hear games talked about seemed to be informed by that to a certain degree. I think it also made us think very differently about our approach to editorial and look, there's all this other shit that you don't actually have to write because no one cares, you know? And I Absolutely. think and I think now the lesson as well is because of YouTube and Twitch and so many other things is there's a, there, there is a ton of stuff that if you're writing an article about a video game, you don't have to say because you can assume that the majority of the people you're speaking to have some semblance of knowledge of what you're talking about, unless it's something really esoteric and weird and out there. Like, you know, I mean, you know, the Watch Dogs 2 trailer hit this morning as we're mm -hmm. speaking and... We already now, anyone that's even vaguely interested has a rough frame of reference on, on what Watch Dogs 2 is all about, you know? It's yeah, set yeah. In San, it's set in San Francisco. We know about Marcus, the protagonist. We know it's got a bit of a Mr. Robot vibe. You know, it's the whole Bay Area. Like, those are all the assumptions that are the foundation now. So now it's like, now let's find a way to talk about it that doesn't dwell on that stuff. Yeah, it's not on the, the mechanics and the kind of, you know, what is this game? Right, and it's I think what could this mean, and you know, what could this be saying and stuff, and that can be hard. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Because um, sometimes a game is just a game, and I think, but that's a skill as well, being able to spot when a game is just a game and not looking for meaning where when it's not there. You know, some things are just awesome, dumb fun, and you've you've got to know that that's what it's going for. I think a good recent example of that is Dangerous Golf, which. Uh, is by the guy, ex Criterion guy, like yeah, Alex yeah. Ford, who made Burnout. It's crash mode, but without a car, with a golf ball. And it's not trying to be anything other than, you know, you're breaking shit with a golf ball. And, you know, and the best possible environment is to pass the controller around and you're having a laugh because everything's exploding and flying everywhere. Yeah, and that, it's, is, it's that is all that game is trying to be. Um, and I think it's as much of a skill to spot when a game isn't trying to be something more as it is spotting what Firewatch is trying to say, you know? Yeah, no, totally. And before we sort of get onto the American stuff, like when, when you were um, working on, on the PC player and PC zone, were there, were there games that, that kind of you, you felt were like your game, so to speak, because you're constantly like, you, you'd be kind of torn, I imagine, between like what game, uh, are our readers going to be interested in and where do I put my time and what game is to, this is just for me this is like I mm -hmm. love this I was for the longest time it's less so now but I was the car guy for a long time um, so back then it was things like the you know like the Formula One games and a lot of those car sims and stuff and then and then later that became you know Gran Turismo Burnout Forza um the stuff that I've always spent a lot of time with was things that were that kind of hybrid of action and RPG. So I always loved Diablo. I always loved uh, System Shock and Ultima Underworld. And that's stuff that you could just lose yourself in. Yeah. That, that ultimately actually ended up influencing nearly every other genre, weirdly, you know. Um, and the games that I've lost myself in since have always had those kinds of roots to them. It goes back to your your competition winning idea of like drop zone. This is a fun game, but it'd be cool if you could like explore a world. Yeah, there's clearly something embedded in you. Um, yeah, I think that sort of you know let me wander around and discover things, and you know, 
if it has a cool looking map that helps you know absolutely yeah and exploit is one of the best things that games games can do um so w- when when did you go to america how did that happen so 1998 um so we would go over so this was before there was an e3 and ces was the big u.s games presence there were two ces's a year back then there was one in vegas and one in chicago and we would always go to both of them and i got to know the guys that ran egm from going to ces in chicago i would yeah i'm not sure how it happened but i would always end up getting a drink with them it's probably still quite a small community you know people who write their games yeah i think so and i think back then as well a lot of the U.S. publishers were enamored with what was happening in England because the, the British magazines just were ahead of the curve in terms of the way they were writing and particularly the way they were designed. Like in yeah. the mid to late 90s, it was night and day in the way they were, in the way these things looked. Um, so I think a lot of the, and there were a lot of Brits starting to come over here and, you know, Future had moved over here and opened Imagine and we got Next Gen and the US PC Gamer and they were definitely pushing things forward. Yeah. And we'd been chatting and I had, you know, been out for a drink with the publisher and their editorial director and, you know, Ed Semrad, who was the founding editor of EGM had been there forever, who I thought, you know, he's never going to leave, but you know over a beer i'm like look if ed ever ever leaves give me a call it was one of those sort of glib yeah sure i'll move to america if this scenario that will never happen happens um and i got a call one day (laughs) and uh and it was joe funk who was the editorial director of 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 what was then the ziff davis game group and he, he was like remember you said if ed ever left that you wanted you wanted his job and i'm like yeah and he's like ed just left (laughs) can you get on a plane this week and come meet the team why did you like what prompted you to say that though just like oh that'd be cool go and work in america oh yeah i mean it was just like because it was another it was an order of magnitude in in terms of audience right and it was like you know the biggest pc zone was probably ever going to be was it maybe had a shot at at selling hundred thousand copies if we had a really amazing issue and distribution was everything, if, if the stars aligned, that yeah. that was as big as it was ever going to get. Um, and then there was this, you know, these stuff, these things in the States that were selling, you know, nearly half a million copies and were 400 pages thick. And it was like, wouldn't it be cool to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and it, 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 it popped up and, and it was one of those make or break, you know, every now and then I think you're faced with decisions in life where you're like, if I, um, if I don't do this, then, you know, I'm going to regret it forever. <laughs> and that was one of them where it was like, I've got to do this. Um, and did you have it, like a family at that time, like a, a wife or anything? Yeah. Um, and she was, you know, uh, we're not married anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> But she was very supportive. She's like, let's go, let's do it. Let's, um, let's, uh, uh, you know, give it a couple of years and see where it goes. Yeah. And, and, you know, the original plan was, you know, we'll do two years and we'll go back to the, we'll go back to the UK and, and, and sort of, it would have been an interesting adventure. And that was 18 years ago. Um, and you know, that was, I spent two years in Chicago. Um, and then, we parted ways and I moved to San Francisco when I was, so at that point I was running all of editorial for 
the game group and I was overseeing the official PlayStation magazine and sort of maintaining the Sony relationship. So I kind of had to be in the Bay Area because it's where Sony was. So when I moved out to San Francisco, that was that kind of point where I'm like, well, I'm probably going to be here longer now. Yeah. And then got married and bought a house and have two kids. And, you know, <laughs> now I live here <laughs> permanently. Absolutely. And um, like, was there, did you notice a, a difference between the sort of the, the British and the American kind of scene at the time in terms of like the games and the journalists and stuff? Yeah, so I, I, the biggest one I think was uh, I had a very different sort of frame of reference and 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 background and because I didn't grow up with Nintendo, I think was the biggest cultural difference, right? So that I was I was managing all these guys that had, you know, an NES when they were a kid. So there were all these like games that were these life-changing experiences for them like zelda and i didn't have that point of reference did you not i mean you must have been aware of it at the time i was aware of them but at no point had zelda changed my life in any sort of meaningful way you know had you played them at the time though or were you just sticking to the the pc stuff well it, it was tough to get that stuff in the uk back then i mean like it wasn't really until the genesis and super nintendo that um uh that we were seeing more console stuff in the UK, that sort of master system NES era. It was like, you know, it, it, it wasn't everywhere. No. Uh, so I was able to look at particularly the Nintendo stuff in a bit more of an objective fashion than everyone around me, which didn't always win me lots of friends because <laughs> I would be like, well, do you love it because it's good or because it's got that name on it? You know? And I think that was the big that was honestly the biggest sort of cultural and historical difference. But did you think that when, like, at the time, you know, back in the UK when Zelda was around, were you kind of like, well, this is okay, but, you know, look at all these games that I've played? Um, yeah, I just think the significance of it wasn't entirely obvious. Um, okay. When I was 13, we spent three months in the states because my dad was working out of an ibm office in poughkeepsie and we came with him and it was just interesting just you know watching tv and stuff seeing the nes tv ads and stuff all the time and um it was very different than it was back home you know and how how it was part of the culture in a different way yeah but then it wasn't until i came back much later that it was like it sort of dawned on me by hanging out with all these guys that you know I'd previously not known and hear them talking about the games that they loved and what moved them. And their, their sort of game, their personal gaming history was completely different than mine. Yeah. Like super Mario brothers is without question, the most mentioned game on the show like that for, for almost everybody that was either their first or one of their formative video game experiences. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting as well because, um, yeah, you know, Mario would was brought into the UK in sort of weird ways on the computers, right? I don't know if you remember. I mean, it would it would pop up through unconventional ways. You know, it would be you know the licensed version for the. I'm sure there was a Commodore 64 version or something. You know, and it, so it was it was you know that you know that stuff. And then I think the other one that always that I kind of had to get up to speed on really quickly was the Square stuff. Oh, really? Uh, 
Yeah. Um, the first Final Fantasy I played was um, seven, which I did play in the UK. I played it on PS1 in the UK, and it was. And was that your first kind of JRPG? Yeah. Um, and then when I moved to the US, there was definitely this kind of um, wow. People really love this stuff. <laughs> did you like it though? Was it? Was it? Oh yeah, I was. Yeah? I was. I was hooked. Yeah. Like, do you feel like that that helped kind of broaden your appreciation of games a lot more? Did you find yourself oh, yeah. enjoying a lot more games? Yeah, I mean, Xenogears actually really hooked me. That was one of the first sort of big games that I lost myself in when I first moved to the States. Um, and it was good as well because there were it was it was also a good story. To, there were good stories that came out of it, right? It was more than just an RPG. It was a game that was trying to say something, and that yeah. was an interesting exercise to, you know, work with editors and be like, okay, well, it's more than the mechanics of an RPG. There's something else going on here. Let's get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> this is a common thing that comes up on the show a lot. But if you've played more than a couple of them, which is your favorite Final Fantasy? Oh God. I mean, probably seven, but I think it's more tinged with nostalgia and and the fact that it was the first one and yeah. it opened my eyes to things. Um, I think often it is like the first one you played is is going to yeah. be your favorite one. You know, my brother is massively into all of them um, and has an appreciation for them that that I don't think I do necessarily. Um, I, I I I get them. I mean, it got to a point. I think a lot of those games where I'm like, you know, eh, is it really doing anything that different? Uh. <laughs> but did you think, like, aside from like the the sort of gaming lineages and stuff, was was there any sort of differences or commonalities between like the type of people, like literally, that would have been working on those magazines? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you know we all had shared experiences just in terms of you know how it was part of the what we chose to do with our time and how that informed social lives growing up and um you know i think being in the press early on it was more and and this is a shift that's happened late sort of later is that it was always important to know games and then learn how to write rather than be a writer that learns an appreciation for gaming yeah yeah absolutely um and in the transition between those two states that's where a lot of the tension i think has come um because the people that really know games that maybe weren't that great at communicating those ideas and i think you know we're at a point now i think where it's it's really important to be a good storyteller and journalist yeah to move things forward that understands games whereas previously i mean you could get hired at 15, 20 years ago because you knew what the games were, you know? And, and that, that was the qualification. Okay, you understand this stuff. Um, and that's not so much the case now. And that's probably, like, certainly in terms of the, the writing that's available, that's, that's all for the better. Yeah. Um, so how, like, I've I, I mentioned it, like, I don't want to repeat more too much that I've said to, to Jeff, but, like, one of yours, honestly... One up yours and GFW Radio, but one up yours in particular was the very first video game podcast like I I ever heard, and a lot of people I know because it was literally one of the first video game podcasts ever made. Yeah. Um, and did you? You said obviously like uh, after the fact, it's you know, you you realised the importance of it, but at the time, like we did you think, oh well, this is just whatever, we'll just do this. Yeah, 
I mean, we, we had no idea. Um, uh, it was funny listening to Jeff, actually, because I can remember. So I was Jeff's boss, and yeah. I was when he was talking about the higher-ups telling him that he had to do it, that was me. <laughs> uh, and it was like, no, we're all going to do one. You're going to have to. And so we were on one floor, and the studio where we recorded this stuff was a few floors down. And it was like, you know, you're going to go down after work, and you guys are going to do a podcast. I don't want to do a podcast. Um, and it was, it was an experiment to see where it would go. And it would, you know, we'd been talking about it and it was a different approach. And it was, you know, because we'd been experimenting with video and we'd been experimenting with different ways of getting stories out there. Yeah. And it was like, this, this seems like a relatively low impact for higher reward exercise in that we can sit in a room for an hour and talk and then an hour of production and put it online and maybe something good will come of it. Um, what was interesting is we never really had a full understanding of how popular it was because it was almost impossible to track any kind of metrics on podcasts back then. It's still pretty hard to be honest, but yeah. Um, I mean, unless you're going through a, a service that has analytics baked in as part of its thing, yeah. but I mean, you know, back then the way that a lot of the software worked was it would fire lots of requests at servers, you know, in order to pull the media down at the fastest possible speed available. Yeah. And and the only way to track any kind of metrics was the number of times a server got hit. So the numbers would either be really low or really high and it wasn't actually the number of completed downloads and we had no way of knowing that people had actually listened to the thing. So we were sort of flying blind in terms of quantifying whether it was worth our time or not. And, yeah. you know, I would get into arguments with the sales team about audio and video because, you know, well, there's not a number associated with it. We can't sell a sponsorship on it, you know. Um, but then we would go to, to events and people would, like, come and grab us and talk to us and tell us how much they loved it. And, and it was some of the early PAX events where we really started to notice that it was actually affecting people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, since you're in charge, it's quite interesting. Like, if you were kind of uh, running these, essentially, you were the boss, did you pick who was on what show? Or no. was that kind of just the organic thing? Because it was such a perfect mix of different people. It was, I mean, that was the, the th I mean, you know, I would go to the, the EICs on everything. So it would have been, you know, it was Dan Shu and Jeff, um, and I mean, later on, there was like Tom Byron and uh, Simon Cox. And, you know, it was like, look, you know, we're going to do this thing. Like, you got to think about the chemistry. You got to be able to keep a conversation going for an hour or more without there being any weird breaks. Just go try it and see what happens. I mean, it literally came out of that. And a lot of what we were we were pushing at that time was like, you know, let's in everything that we're doing, let's push on the creativity and be a bit different and see what takes um, and it was that was our approach with One Up, and it was the way that we were trying to evolve the magazines. It was like you know, it's not enough to be doing the same thing, and you know, all of the guys at that EIC level were of the same mind that way. It's like I'm not interested in doing the same old boring stuff. Let's try and come up with a way of approaching this differently. Yeah, and and podcasts ultimately became a part of that, and it was it was you know there was that early like. I don't really understand this or whether it's going to work that once we started getting the feedback, you could, you could see where it was popping. 
And you could you could hear it when the chemistry was right. It was you know you could tell. Oh yeah, no, it was so exciting, and and probably like a lot of um, people involved in making them, there was a, an element of me going into it, going like, why would I want to listen to that? And then just being hooked and and really, it, it was just, it was unlike anything that had come before. Like and that sounds quite grand, but it, gen- it genuinely was. It was like being in a room with people, being like the silent uh, observer around the table. It was it was brilliant. You know, a lot of it was built around chemistry. And I, I mean, I think that's what a lot of it always comes back to, right? Is if you put a bunch of people that get along really well that know what they're talking about, then you can you can extract some good stuff out of that. Yeah. Um, one thing I do think is sort of going the other way. If One Up Yours had been several years later than it was, I think it could have been huge. <laughs> that must be quite frustrating. A little bit. <laughs> because it was kind of, it was because it was the first and it it, it it built the kind of the audience necessary like in theory you know there wasn't yeah, a people who listen to the podcast audience it was pre sort of massive youtube shows right and it yeah. was it was doing some stuff that you know is now everywhere um so this is i'll ask you a couple of they're not really quick fire questions they're just questions um, okay but like You've been writing and reviewing uh, games, you know, most of your life. Is there any game that you're you're best at, or that you know you're, you've been very competitive with? Not really competitive. It's been more sinking a lot of hours into things. Oblivion. Uh, later on, north of a hundred hours into Skyrim, and then I think the game most recently that's got me in a similar way was Witcher Three, which I oh, think so good. 170 something hours in Witcher 3. Have you tried the DLC yet? No, I, I have it queued up and ready to go. But I, yeah, I just, I just enjoy kind of those worlds. And I particularly like, what I like about particularly Skyrim and Witcher is when you get into these sort of more detective story type yeah. elements. I loved, you know, I loved the side quests in Oblivion and then I think the ones in Skyrim were fantastic as well. And then, you know, I spend a lot of time in the side quests. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever left the side quests with Skyrim, actually. I don't think I've ever actually completed that despite putting in God well, Sky- many hours. Skyrim, I, it, it was one of those things where I was sort of, I was hopping between a side quest and the main quest. And then it sort of dawned on me that, oh, I just finished the main story. Oh, um, right. <laughs> oops. You know, <laughs> um, and then just kept going with all of the the extra stuff. Um, and then Witcher, I was kind of the same way, where I kind of I slow down my progress by getting very distracted with this side stuff. Apologies for this weird interlude. Skype was a pain in the ass, so this is my bridging bit. Let's continue. You mentioned what did I get really competitive about? I mean, it wasn't a sort of direct sort of pvp style competition but yeah. back in the one up yours days luke smith and i were really really hooked on crackdown and <laughs> it's and good Jay job you finished Chow. that sentences sentence thing <laughs> so uh, and che who's it so who's at uh who was the managing editor was uh he was at 343 now he was into it as well and we would come in and every day we would be telling stories about how we got particular orbs in you remember the green orbs yeah, that were yeah, scattered yeah. all over the place before games over started overdoing this stuff 
And it was like, you know, the, the side thing was, well, let's see if you can get them all and you can see one on top of a building and how you're going to get there. And, you know, everyone would have a different story on how they were able to, to find something. And I've always loved that stuff and, and that kind of competition where it's like, yeah, I got the one on this building and I did it like this, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the best stuff comes from. Yeah, I mean, that was very much like I remember Grand Theft Auto 3, like the, the, the first sort of 3D one on the PlayStation 2. That was the first time I can remember people talking about games in terms of things that they did in the game that you had no idea were possible and then you'd be excited to try them out, you know? Yeah. It's so, so good. Um, okay, well, there's a similar sort of question and a similar sort of theme. Are there any games that you've had to walk away from and say, like, this is too much, this is affecting my life now? Because I'm playing it too much or because I, I, I'm, I'm because you're not enjoying your... it? No, 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 because, because you're playing it too much because it's taken over aspects of your life that, like, uh, hygiene, for instance. Oh, uh, no, I mean... Probably the worst was The Witcher 3 because what happened was that I was part of the last round of big layoffs at Zynga and that happened to happen the day before The Witcher came out. (laughs) So literally my first day at home sort of, you know, when I didn't have a job and didn't have anything to do and it was sort of like, what am I going to do in my life is that The Witcher showed up that morning. (laughs) Um, So yeah, there was definitely a point where, you know, you know, a buddy of mine would, would text me and he's like, did you remember to put pants on today? <laughs> <laughs> that That is slightly concerning because that implies um, previous on your behalf. <laughs> that this is something he has to remind you about because, John, look, remember what happened last time? You forgot to get dressed and stopped showering. And yeah. So I think, yeah, the most recently The Witcher was, you know, I never actually finished the main quest line in The Witcher 3 despite putting 170 hours into no, it. No, me either. Um, I kind of backed away and then I stopped because it was becoming a bit of a problem. And then I sort of moved on to other things and I'm going to drift back, I think with blood and wine. Absolutely. Um, do your, do your kids play games? I mean, obviously they do because of course they're kids, but like, was that something like, were you like the dad who's like, right, you need to play this you need to play this first. I tried to steer them in the right direction and then, you know, I mean, when I left Ziff and I started what they play, I mean, that was basically that whole business plan came out of of going to preschool and then kindergarten events and sort of being and have ever since been labeled the video games guy in that yeah. little community, you know, like, you know about video games, what do I need to know about this? And it was like, it sort of dawned on me that there's probably a business there and that was why we launched what they play was just based out of all these parents that are like my kids want to play this thing and i don't know anything about it um yeah so they you know they've grown up surrounded by this stuff and it being in the house and you know we've always tried to control it to a degree and make sure that you know they're not playing anything that they probably shouldn't um they're getting older now so they're a little more independent but you know they they moved up through you know they were they were learning video games as the Wii was getting big right so they had a nice sort of safe point of entry um and then they both eventually moved to minecraft and then minecraft sort of informed each of their tastes very differently subsequently so my youngest what he took from Minecraft was the sort of creativity and the making your own gameplay and that more sort of indie thing. He's really yeah. into a lot of the indie stuff. 
And then my uh, my older son, kind of what he learned from Minecraft was uh, first person shooter skills, because nice. Minecraft is surprisingly awesome at teaching you that. Um, but he's also really into. I mean, he's nearly thirteen, but he's really into pretty hardcore strategy games like he's a big history and uh sort of social studies buff at school and uh so he loves like all the paradox strategy games so he play he's probably logged more time in europa universalis 4 than anyone i know <laughs> that's that's amazing like but then i i wonder like what sort of games that i would be like i, I would be into if i was a kid like now because when i was growing up it was like whatever games are available that's what i'm into whatever i can get my hands on basically but there's so mm -hmm. many options there you can really you can properly kind of define a, a taste quite early and go in specific directions yeah like I'm, I'm wondering actually like i was thinking about this the other day um because i used to be like i used to be really into music and i was in bands and stuff and that was kind of what i did for a good couple of years and recently like i'm mid-30s now i mean i still try and keep up with new music but it doesn't it doesn't feel as as vital as as it once did. I think maybe because I don't know because of streaming, maybe because I'm just getting old. Mm -hmm. But but games seem to have kind of taken up that mantle, and there's been a lot of chat about kind of very much like the sort of the punk DIY attitudes, kind of indie gaming and stuff. And I wonder if if video games now for for kids are the equivalent of like music, you know, back in like the 70s and 80s for sort of teenagers, whether they. You know, oh they, i think so do yeah you know what I, I mean like going towards the the kind of anarchic side of games and the counterculture games you know i think they're broad enough to be able to to do that now definitely i think there's things like there are games that are really important to kids in that regard that you walk into a room full of video game editors anywhere in the world and they'll look at you like you're stupid when you say things like you know agario is more important than whatever you're writing about right now <laughs> I don't even know what Agario is. Well, there you go, right? And like every oh, now kid, I feel really uncool. Every kid I know plays that game. Like it's it it the way that it has sort of insinuated itself into into particularly you know tween and young teen culture. And why it, why is it? Why is the game? It's um it started out as a browser based thing. There's a mobile version. It's um. It has a lot in common with. Do you remember Osmos? Where I don't know. You're a you're a bubble, and then you gobble up other bubbles, and you get bigger, and you're moving oh, okay. around two D environment. But it's very it's very. It, I mean, it started out as a browser game, so it was very flat. And you start out, and you're a circle, and you can you can put your name or a graphic or whatever in the circle, and then you can gobble up any circles that are smaller than you. And the world, the the environment is full of little circles, some of which are other players. Um, and you sort of bounce around, and you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then your sort of view of the game expands as your bubble gets bigger. And it's very competitive, and and there's millions of YouTube videos around it, and it runs on anything. And there's a sort of subculture of people putting, you know, offensive stuff on the bubbles. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's it's massive. Like I was talking to some of the guys at IGN. They had an event over there recently. Where they had a bunch of kids come in to tour the office, and you know, they did a meet and greet with the editors. And they were like, well, "What games are you playing?" I was on the list, and it was another one of these things where it's like you know, kids knew what it was, and it's just your time. 
sort of trying to keep up with what's happening in the games industry. Games like that don't always pop out because they're not getting the same kind of attention. They're just being played a lot, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where the culture is changing. I think Minecraft was is sort of the poster child for that. But there's a lot of games in that space where they are super popular with really dedicated audiences. And if you're over even 20, you might not know. That's amazing. I mean, there is going to come a point, and there probably already has come a point, where somebody will say something along the lines of, oh, look at that. What's that? It's just a bunch of circles. Games back in my day, they were, they were right. about proper things and people. But uh, I think the, what those games are doing as well is that they're informing taste and they're, they're influencing other things. And I think the YouTube culture has had a big effect on the way people think about games and the way yeah. they think narrative and what they're doing you know it's it's games as, and this is the sort of punk thing that you were mentioning it's the it's games as expression and it's not some of it is the game enables you to build something to express yourself but then some of them is just the way you choose to play it i mean i think this goes back to grand theft auto 3 where you would you know traditional gamers would play through the story and you would do all the stuff but then you talk to some people and you're like well and they're like well all i do is i just goof off yeah absolutely i spend all day looking for stunt jumps and stuff yeah and it's it's a it's a it's a play set not a structured narrative i'm just in i'm just in it to play with the toys and i think that's something that younger players are much more comfortable with than older players and like the reason I made the the music analogy is is because like Glixel is kind of part of Rolling Stone. I mean, I'm sure Rolling Stone have always had games coverage, but do you think this is a conscious effort on their part to kind of try and address that kind of audience? Definitely. I mean, they they've not touched back games very often. Um, they've done like the big, um, you know, sort of big pop culture moments. They'll you know they've done stories on Minecraft and. And, you know, like things that are that permeate everything they've covered yeah, yeah, yeah. as an observation of pop culture. Um, but when I started talking to them about wanting to do this, it was more that, look, games are now clearly influencing pop culture. And the people that we talk to are much more involved in, in playing video games. And it's part of the mix. And generationally, it's a different part of pop culture and entertainment. There's a desire to, you know, expand the reach of Rolling Stone. And, you know, it's a significant pop culture voice. Um, and the way that we're we're set up is that you know we're we're looking at you know ways we can tell different kinds of stories about video games, um, and we we exist as a completely separate brand, Lexel. Um, so right now it's the newsletter. Later this year it will be its own website, but we're also the sort of bigger stories and the sort of pop culture moments and the significant stuff we're we're feeding into the culture section of Rolling Stone's website. So okay, cool. things around Overwatch, things around Doom, things, you know, next week there'll be some stuff from E3. The bigger trends, you know, it's, it's bringing that stuff into the mix on Rolling Stone. And for us, it's great because it gives us a platform to, to get the word out on the kinds of things that we're talking about yeah. early. Um, so that we're not launching from a standing start in September, October, when we launch the full thing, in that people will already have an idea where we're coming from in terms of tone and the types of story we want to tell, and and you know the the, the style that we want to approach stuff. Uh, I actually really like the the newsletter format. Like, it's just 
because I haven't like used a newsletter in so many years. It's, it's quite nice because it is it's the equivalent of you know a, a magazine. You know, here's here's a, here's a bunch of stuff about games. Read through at your leisure. Yeah, and it's I mean we we've been looking at what uh, Bill Simmons was doing with the Ringer. So like yeah yeah when we were when we were talking about uh, Glixel in the early days, there were a lot of things that were our sort of analogs in other spaces i'm like wouldn't it be great if there was something like this about video games and the one that kept coming up was grandland which was bill simmons previous thing at espn yeah um and there were a few others as well and then you know when when the ringer was launched as a newsletter and it was full text not links it was like there's an in, there's something interesting here because you can you're forced to curate a package of content that's four or five stories every time that yeah. need to work together and need to be relevant and need to be interesting and you can write maybe a little bit longer because you know it's what we actually found is there's a lot of research that people will actually read longer stories on their phone um oh absolutely i mean i kind of do that like the, the curation thing that's something i kind of do myself anyway like i will i will like in, in like a, an insta paper or a um yeah, it's a similar sort of thing. So in a way, in a way, it was that that approach. It's like okay, every every week, let's look at what's going to be significant that people are going to be talking about, and and find an interesting hook. And then it's like putting a little magazine out every week. So we've been once a week. I think this week we're actually going to do two. There'll be one on Friday, um, as well as the one we put out on Monday. And then next week during E3, we'll do a couple. Um, and then over the summer, as we hire more people, we'll probably you know we'll be doing it may get up to three a week i think it depends on sort of the what's happening in the space and the kinds of stories that we can tell and yeah and then we'll launch in october and it'll be you know however many stories a day when we've got a full team up and running but i think right now what we want to do is like this is the way that we want to talk about stuff and we're interested in where the fans are super active and what people are really enjoying it's not it doesn't always have to be what's the next big thing it's like okay well you know everyone's really into overwatch is there there's a million stories you can tell about overwatch uh, so let's go find the best ones you know and yeah. and i think the big difference between now and and when i was coming up through media is that the best stuff is now after launch whereas traditionally it was always you were chasing the things up until launch and then you would you would review the thing and that might be the last time you ever talked about it and i think now the release is sort of the beginning of the interesting stuff because the audience Absolutely. is discovering really interesting things and they're playing it in different ways and there are these cultures and you know everything is from something as simple as a meme to something as you know when people are finding the 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 way the systems work and they're looking at the mechanics and breaking them or they're there are people on YouTube that are establishing themselves as the expert in a particular game. And we want to look at that as, all right, well, I want to know what this guy thinks about this game because he has an audience of 500,000 people that are following him because he's absolutely, because he knows this game inside out. And I think the, the cultural shift on the media side is that there was always this assumption that if you were in the media, you had to, know more than everybody else, have better access than everyone else. And, you know, I mean, particularly back in the early, early days, is there was an expectation that you were awesome at games as well. You know, I remember Jazz Rignall when he ran Me Machines was, you know, the, 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 the gamer everyone thought was the best gamer in Britain, right? And it was like, that was part of the culture. Now it's, it's about the ability to take the information and 
and reflect what's happening in the culture back to everyone and be like, this is important and this is what's going on. And yeah. this game and this event and this person are, are what you should be paying attention to. And, and it's quite hard to quantify as well. I mean, who's, who's the best at Firewatch? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think there are interesting takes on Firewatch or there's, you know, the, I think the stuff around, you know, the artwork that Ollie Moss did. And, you know, they, there's, oh, a of lot, course, there's, yeah. there's a ton of stories that, that surround a game. And it's just, it's, it's, it's taking the time to be like, okay, well, what is actually the most interesting thing here? And it's, and it's not, it's less that sort of book report approach where you're sort of chronicling all of the constituent parts and then saying whether it's any good or not. I honestly don't think that people really give a shit about reviews anymore. Um, no, absolutely not. Majority of games, I think you've you've decided already if you're going to buy it. And a I mean, you would have seen that with your kids as well. Like you'd see like what what they're excited about and what they're looking for. Yeah, and it's more about convey the experience to me. And I think there's still. There's still an opportunity in that window that reviews fall in, but I don't think it's I'm telling you whether you should buy it or not. It's more, look, I've played it and you haven't, so this is what my experience of it was, and you may relate to that or not. Yeah. But but whether you relate to it or not, either is valid because you, now you have something to react to. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that was like... Um... You, you can't kind of go back because of you know forums and, and youtube and twitch it's impossible to you're never going to get like the big previews anymore because it's always an ongoing cycle there's always just a gradual drip of news and you start to form an idea of what that thing is going to be yeah and if you and if you know you've seen a youtube video it's like well you know i kind of get what it is <laughs> absolutely yeah totally um so finish it off then it's coming up to e3 what are you excited about i think i think it will be interesting to see what's happening with the hardware i think we'll definitely see something from sony i'm not so sure that microsoft will show anything definitive i think they'll hint they may surprise us i don't know microsoft tends to not back away from an arms race and i think that's what's coming um yeah. But I think it's a it's an interesting arms race in that we're now in this we're 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 moving into this iterative cycle, right? Where Xbox and PlayStation are what they are, and it's not going to be the way it used to be, where every time it's a completely new thing and you're starting from zero, it's it's slightly improving what came before. So it's more like it's more like PC. It's the Apple model. It's, a, it's Apple. It's it's PC. It's Android. It's it's we'll just keep growing. Um, Lorne Lanning said something really interesting on a Game Informer podcast a while back. And he's like, when he, because his background is Hollywood. And he was like, look, you know, you can talk to these Hollywood people about the games industry. And the way you have to describe it to them is imagine that every 10 years you have to go and knock all the movie theaters down and start again. Yeah. And it's just, it's dumb. And like, we don't need the bespoke hardware the way we're used to. The stuff that NVIDIA and Intel and AMD and, and whoever are building is is moving way faster than the bespoke stuff can move. So I think, you know, they are to all intents and purposes, task specific PCs. And I think that's the path that we're on. And we may see iterations every year. And I think there'll be you know, much like there is with the iPhone, there'll be a window in which the, a brand new game will definitely work on everything back this far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
So you have to kind of, you don't have to be cutting edge, but you've got to keep up. Right. Um, you know, I mean, like right now, like a high-end iPhone game will work on everything back to a 4S, but if you've got less than a 4S, it might not work. Yeah. And I think we'll see a similar thing there where it's like if you, you know, in 2018, if you have a 2013 Xbox One, there's a chance it might not have the stuff in it that you need to run this thing. That's, I mean, I, I fully, like, I can see why Sony and Microsoft would do that. It, it makes financial sense and business sense. But part of me is a little bit disappointed that there's not going to be, here's the brand new thing and look at all that it can do. But then I suppose, like, thinking back for the jump from, like, PS3 to 4 and uh, 360 to Xbox One, it, it wasn't. I think that's the first time in my life, I think, where the new console wasn't like, holy shit, look at that. It was just like, oh, okay, that looks better. Yeah. So that's that's fine. So I think, that, uh, I think that's going to be the most sort of talked about stuff at, um, uh, at E3. So are you still as excited about games has there ever been a period where you've been like oh you know i'm just sick of this no i don't think so i mean i think it moves it moves at a pace where um it's interesting i mean there was a point where i, I wasn't sure if the media opportunity was ever going to come up ever again um but right now i mean it's 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 awesome being able to sort of look at how we're at a point where gaming is changing really dramatically. We're at a point where media is changing really dramatically. So it's it's good to be sort of in the thick of it as as expectations around everything is changing. Absolutely. It's very exciting. Um, I think we've covered all sorts of good stuff, John. But if there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention please go ahead take this opportunity uh can i pimp the newsletter oh absolutely yeah um you go to glixel.com g-l-i-x-e-l and put in your email address and you'll get a lovely newsletter at least once a week and it's good and i'm not i'm not even saying that to be nice i mean i suppose i am in a sense because i'm nice but it is genuinely like i'm I'm really enjoying it (laughs) good um okay well i'm gonna let you go because you've probably got loads of stuff to do um but thanks so much again um are you okay you happy with that aside from the (laughs) audience